once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How long is a question asked a lot in Scripture, both by God about his people and of God by his people? When God answers, it's likely not what you expect. Teaching team member Caleb Click starts the series Habakkuk, Hard Thoughts of God, with this message entitled Faith's Crisis, which covers Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. It's good to be with you uh, this a.m. If you have your Bibles, open up, if you would, with me to the book of Habakkuk. And if you don't know what that is and you think maybe I've got a hairball in my throat, uh, go to the book of Matthew and just start turning left. Just a couple pages. If you see Jonah or Micah or Nahum, you have gone too far. Uh, This is a book of only about four pages long, so you might miss it. I'm excited about this book. This is one we're going to get to spend four weeks on, and I know that if you're anything like me, this is a book that doesn't get preached very often. Uh, It's not one that you tend to, you know, when you're in the morning, you're thinking, man, i got to get my fill of Jesus, that you go, you know what, I really need some Habakkuk. Usually, it's the Psalms or John or one of those books that's just a little more accessible, but this is a book that I pray and I hope becomes precious to you by the time we're finished. Because this is a book for people who have questions for God, even for people who are angry with Him and are tempted to think hard thoughts of Him and to wonder, does He really care? Is He listening? Does He love me? And if that's you, this is a book that has incredibly good news because the God that we find in Habakkuk is a God who doesn't just hear our questions, he welcomes them. And it starts in chapter 1, verse 1, with the prophet prophet Habakkuk asking a question of his God. Read with me now. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And here's God's answer. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all, every one of them, come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we come this morning confessing that we are weak, but you are strong. And Lord, we pray that you would, through your Spirit, open our eyes, hear in your word to beautiful things. Lord, to the only wise God, our Savior, Jesus himself, and I pray, Lord, that you would so grip our hearts with his beauty and his majesty and his glory that, Lord, wherever you would lead, no matter how hard it may seem, we would follow and do so with joy. Work now in Jesus' name. Speak. Amen. Growing up, my mom used to read, my little brother and my sister and I, these little books called The Chronicles of Narnia by a man named C.S. Lewis. And, and you may know those books, you may know a lot about that man, but for me as a kid, I had no idea that he had actually written anything else. And I remember in college, I had come to faith about a year before, and I stumbled across this book on my roommate's dresser called Mere Christianity. And I'd never seen it, I'd never heard of it, and so I picked it up and I started to read. And for me, as an introvert book nerd, it was like I'd found a long-lost friend. Because here was a guy who not only wrote the truth, but wrote it beautifully. Who could take complex things and make them simple. Who could take the Christian faith and make it not only understandable, but even attractive. This guy who could take those naughty issues, those things that so confuse and confound us, And somehow he always seemed to be able to articulate them with clarity in a way that we could understand. He always seemed to have the answer. But there's one book of his, it's not my favorite, but there's one book of his that has haunted me because it's the book that has the least answers. It's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote after the death of his wife a little book called A Grief Observe. And if you don't know Lewis's story, Lewis spent most of his life as a bachelor. He never thought he would get married, but when he met Joy, suddenly the Lord kind of turned his life upside down as he does to so many of us. But he knew, even when he said his vows, loving this woman, he knew that their time was probably going to be short. She had cancer. And the prognosis was grim, but he hoped and he prayed that maybe the Lord would spare her and maybe he would heal her. And for a very brief period, it seemed as though God was answering his prayers. Her cancer went into remission. Her health returned. They had several years that Lewis would later describe as among the happiest of his life. And then in 1960, the cancer came back. And this time, joy did not recover. And C.S. Lewis, the man who had helped so many people navigate this world of suffering and pain where they could not understand how God could allow those things to happen, suddenly Lewis found himself sitting right there with him, looking at his circumstances and looking at his God and unable to figure out how those two could possibly come together. And it felt as though his faith, this faith he had proclaimed for so many years to so many people in so many books, it felt as though with one blow it had been knocked over like it had been a house of cards. And he wrote this, I am not in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God at all, but so this is what God is really like. 
deceive yourself no longer. Habakkuk starts in a place like that. Habakkuk is a prophet in this book who's doing seemingly very unprophetic things. If you've ever read through the last 12 books of the Old Testament, the minor prophets, you'll notice there's this pattern. The prophets of God are confronting God's people with their sin against God and His covenant. That's the pattern. Habakkuk flips the script. Habakkuk is not confronting God's people with their sin. Habakkuk is confronting God with what he perceives to be God's sin against his people. And he starts just as Lewis does with this agonized question of a man who cannot reconcile his circumstances with the God he thinks he knows and he thinks he understands. And he says this, starting in verse 2. Oh Lord, how long? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law, your law, God's law, the law that is supposed to protect God's people, it's paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. Here's why. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth, not as it is intended, but it goes forth perverted. Wielded by unjust men who worship their own power and want to use it for their own ends. And Habakkuk is looking around and going, God, I don't understand how this could be. Because here's Habakkuk's circumstances. Habakkuk is a prophet to the nation of Judah Sometime early in the reign of King Josiah, somewhere between 640 and 630 B.C. And when he looks around at God's people, and not just as they are now, but in their history, he sees a people that have been ravaged by sin. The twelve tribes that God brought out of slavery in Egypt and he brought to the land of promise and that he made this one nation, those tribes split apart because of sin and became two different nations. Ten tribes to the north called Israel and then two to the south called Judah. And both, both of those nations who were called by God's name, both of them turned more and more with every passing generation, not towards the God who had claimed them as his own, but away. So much so that in 722 B.C., a little less than a hundred years before Habakkuk is writing this letter, God sends the nation of Assyria, that nation that Jonah didn't want to go to. He sends the nation of Assyria to utterly wipe Israel off the face of the map. Ten tribes scattered and dispersed, so much so that it seems as though they are no more. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk is sitting in the midst of the people of Judah a people who should have seen what happened to Israel and should have seen it as a warning that if they did not repent, judgment would come. And Habakkuk looks around and he sees a people who haven't batted an eye. The picture that he's painting here is bleak. Look at the language of the text. Iniquity and wrong, destruction and violence, strife and contention. He's painting a picture of a world 
where the kings are evil and the courts are corrupt, where crime is rampant, where the very borders that they have as a nation, they are being overrun by enemies who are foreign and domestic. He's talking about a place where the very pillars that uphold their way of life and their society, they are crumbling. And the righteous, God's people, the ones who love Him and follow Him by faith in the midst of that sinful people, they're not thriving. He says they are surrounded by the wicked and they are so overwhelmed that justice goes forth perverted. And what he's describing here, it's no exaggeration. When you look in the book of Second Kings, which is the book of the Bible that gives part of the history of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, and you look at the end, you get a vivid picture of just what he's seen. Judah is a place, not only where there are pagan altars all around the countryside, not only are people worshiping in ways that they're not supposed to around the country, but inside God's temple itself, Yahweh's temple, the Lord, the Lord, a God slow to, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the one that says, worship me and worship me alone. Inside his temple, there are altars that have been built to Baal and Ashtaroth, and sacrifices are being made, not to Yahweh, but to them. There are prostitutes wandering through the courts of God. If you think Jesus got angry when he saw the money changers in the temple courts in the New Testament, what do you think the righteous should feel here? Habakkuk is looking at a society that doesn't look like God's holy and chosen people. They look like a ruined one. And he doesn't understand. Because the God he calls to is not an unknown God. He's a known one. Verse 2, O Lord. That word that's translated there in your Bibles as Lord that you see in all caps, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's the covenant name of Israel's God. That's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's the one who brought them out of slavery in Egypt and gave them the land. That's the God who said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If you sin, if you are in distress and you cry out, I will hear you and I will answer. He's the one who told them that he was too holy to look on iniquity. Which notice the language that Habakkuk uses. And Habakkuk is looking at his country and he's looking at God's people and he's going, How can you be that and then this be our experience? How can you be a God who is good and just and holy, who really hears, and yet I cry to you over and over and you do not answer? Do something. Bring revival. Take down the wicked. Raise up the righteous. Bring a good king, not an evil one. Do something, anything. Don't just sit there, and if you don't hear this, I want you to catch it. Habakkuk is not coming to God like Oliver Twist, with his hat in his hands going, please, sir. Like, he's not timid. He's not worried about how God's going to respond to him. He's not kind of holding back and kind of hemming and hawing. What is he doing here? He's angry. You can feel it. Look at verse 3. 
you make me see iniquity. You're taking my face and you're forcing me to look on this and you don't fix it. You idly look it wrong. You are sitting on your hands. You do nothing. The accusation is clear. He's saying, if I was you, I would do something different. So if you're who you say you are, why are you silent and why do you not move? He's angry. And if we're honest... That's an anger that we at times have shared, isn't it? When I graduated from college, I took a step of faith to do something that I had sworn in high school I would never do. I decided to go into ministry. And it was because I felt like the Lord was specifically calling me to this thing. He was pulling me into something that terrified me, something that scared me, something that honestly I didn't really want. But he wouldn't stop. And so when I graduated from Georgia, I remember going, Lord, I trust you. I don't understand this. I don't know what's happening, but I will follow you if this is where you're wanting me to go. And so I got a job as an intern at a discipleship ministry here in Atlanta and then another one as a middle school youth pastor at a church just up the road. And I threw myself into it with everything that I had going, God, if this is you, you're going to have to catch me. I plunged into the church. I plunged into ministry. I started sharing my faith with people that I was coming into contact with. And for a few months, everything seemed to go gloriously. The Lord was showing up. The Lord was opening up doors. And then all of a sudden, the floor dropped out. A guy that I had been sharing my faith with, he began to aggressively stalk my family A guy that I had invited into my home and into my church and around my friends. And when I say aggressively stalk, I don't mean he just kind of followed me around. I mean he threatened to do physical harm and he threatened to do it again and again and again. So that over the course of two years, we had to pull out a series of felony protective orders, every one of them that he broke. My sister began to slip into some serious health issues that almost claimed her life. My aunt died. And I fell into a depression deeper than anything I had experienced before coming to Christ. A place where I would pick up the Bible in the morning and be like, God, say something, help me, meet with me. And it literally felt like the words on the page just turned to ash. And I remember laying on my floor and weeping, going, God, I don't get this. You called me here. You wanted me here. Now, where are you? Do something. That's a backup's cry. It's the cry of the woman who married the man she thought was the man of her dreams, a man who loved her and loved Jesus only to watch in the course of their marriage as that man's faith evaporated and with it his love for her. It's the cry of the child whose father takes him into the backyard to tell him that the cancer that they thought they had beaten, that the cancer that his mom has had that is back, 
The child who thinks about the Jesus he's been told about all his life and wonders, how could that Jesus, a Jesus who so loves me, a Jesus who can raise the dead, a Jesus who could heal the sick, how could he allow this? It's the cry of so many of us who have been disappointed, isn't it? So many of us who find ourselves with Lewis and with Habakkuk and with so many others looking at the world we live in and then looking at the God we think we know and we think we understand and going, how can these things possibly come together? How can they possibly be reconciled? And it is that tension, it is that need that makes this book so precious. Because who's the God of Habakkuk? What does he do? He doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for his questions. He doesn't say, sit down and shut up. Figure it out. He doesn't stay silent. He answers him. And in answering Habakkuk, he answers every single one of us who have ever cried the way he did. But the answer that God gives, it's not the one that we expect. It's an astonishing one. Look at verse 5. God takes the very language that Habakkuk has used to challenge God, and he basically sends it right back in Habakkuk's direction. He says in verse 5, Look, see, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He's saying to Habakkuk, you have your eyes turned on this little piece of earth, this little bitty story amidst the world. I want you to turn and I want you to see a story that encompasses all the nations. I want you to see that my hands, they may look idle to you, but they have not been still. And there is something happening that is bigger than you could ever imagine that you would not believe if you were told. And as we're going to see next week with Jeff, he doesn't believe it. And then God says, here's the good news. I've heard your cry. Look and see, wonder and be astounded. I'm raising up a foreign army to come and destroy you and your people. What? I'm raising up, verse 6, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, a people who at this point in history, they're not even a power. Assyria and Egypt, those were the threats. Those are the ones you would expect to take you down, not, not Babylon. But God says, I'm raising them up. A people who take what doesn't belong to them, a people who flourish and love violence. A people who were haughty and arrogant and unjust in ways you could not imagine. Their justice goes forth from themselves, as the text says. Might makes right. And they worship. They worship their own strength, as it says in verse 11. God says, you think you're surrounded by the wicked now? It's going to get worse. Look and see wonder and be astounded. I am doing a work in your days you would not believe if told. It would be as though you and I pray that God would bring revival here. That he would do something in the midst of our culture and do something in the midst of this nation and do something that would make his name great and his name glorious that would redeem and save his people with very specific ideas in our head of what that's supposed to look like. And then God said, I have good news. I'm raising up the political party that you hate. The one you look at 
and think is opposed to all that is holy and all that is bad or all that is good and I'm going to give them all the power and I'm going to strip you of yours. I'm going to raise up North Korea and I'm going to let their nukes fly and their armies move and your army will fall away like so much dust. I'm going to let my church dwindle and her hypocrisy grow and her persecution become real. Look and see, wonder and be astounded. To which you and I and Habakkuk with us goes, how in the world is that good news? Because that answer seems a lot worse than silence. But here's why this should be really good news to you and I. It's not the answer that we want. It's not the answer Habakkuk wants, but it's the one we need. Because this book, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to step out of our small stories and our small concerns and to realize that whether we acknowledge it or not, we are a part of an infinitely larger story than we could ever imagine, one that encompasses all the nations and all space and all time and all history, a story that begins in creation and ends in a new heavens and a new earth in the redemption of all things. That you and I, we are a part of a story that is much bigger than this present moment and in the hands of a God who is much bigger than the one we've imagined. This is an invitation to leave behind the God that we have formed for ourselves, the one that we call by the name of Jesus, but isn't actually Jesus. Who has to be comprehended by us, whose ways have to be like our ways, who has to do things in our timing and according to our desires. A Jesus who ultimately is not actually sufficient to save because if you and I can comprehend him, he's not very big, is he? And it's an invitation to come instead to the true God. A God who is infinitely bigger than you or me or anything that we could possibly comprehend. A God whose ways are mysterious but in the end always gloriously good. But it's the mystery. It's the mystery we struggle to get past, isn't it? Because this response is not the one we expect And it's not just that God looks ahead and he sees this evil nation that's going to rise up and then he goes, well, Habakkuk, this is going to happen, but don't worry, I'm going to kind of work it out for you. What does God say here? This is not an evil that God allows. This is a judgment God decrees. Verse 5, this is the work I am doing. Verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. All the power they have, they think, comes from themselves. I'm giving it to them. God's saying to Habakkuk, you wanted judgment to come on the wicked. I'm sending it. Just not the way you would have expected. And and catch this, because I think we get so caught up in looking for something that God doesn't intend to provide you. He doesn't tell you why. Do you notice this? He doesn't entangle the knot. He doesn't suddenly cut through it all and show you, here's exactly why this thing has to happen in this way. God doesn't do that. And in fact, he never promises to do that. He does tell you this. The Babylons of this world that seem so powerful and so strong, that worship their own might, 
they're on a leash. For all their posturing and all their pride, they rise and they fall at the whim of our God. And while they may intend evil, this God, Habakkuk's God, the God we see in Christ, He somehow mysteriously, in a way that no, in no way compromises His holiness, He takes those very same men who intend evil and He uses them for good. That's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? We get stuck on the mystery and we want to understand Habakkuk is here that you wouldn't stop and say, I just need to understand everything. Habakkuk is here is that you would see the God who actually saves. As we read through this book, you're going to see Habakkuk go from a place of agony and questioning and confusion to an end where he is crying out to God, not in agony anymore, but in joy. Or the man who goes, how long, O Lord, how long will you do nothing? How long will you not save? At the end, he's going to say, I take joy in the God of my salvation. And the reason is this. The God who hears him and the God who answers him, he's a God whose redemption is certain. You see it right here in this text. The first hint is right there in verse 11. They are what? Guilty men. They may be being used by God as a judgment on Israel, but God has already passed judgment on Babylon. They're like milk. They have an expiration date. It's coming. Because the God that is meeting Habakkuk here, he's the God, as he says in chapter 2, who sits in his holy temple, who tells all the earth to sit in silence before him. He's the one who one day will fill all the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea, literally it's this description of a flood of grace that is going to encompass every single thing you see in this earth, every square inch. And Habakkuk is looking at that God, the same God who promised from the moment of the fall in Genesis 3 that he would crush the serpent's head and make everything sad untrue, that he would destroy evil. Habakkuk hears of that God and he remembers that promise and he said, I will take joy in you. Because your redemption is certain. It may not be in my timing, it may not be in my ways, and I may be super confused, but I know this, you are coming and you will not be thwarted. And not only is his redemption certain, but his heart is tender. You know, that may not seem the most evident when you read over this passage, but I want you to notice something that I think will reshape the way you read this book. There's a verse right here, the very first verse that we tend to read over and just kind of skip. It doesn't seem like the meat of the text, and so we move past it as though it's nothing. But I had a pastor at my old church point this verse out, and it radically changed how I understood this text. Look at what it says, verse 1, chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Did you catch it? God isn't just the source of the answers to Habakkuk's questions. He's actually the source of the questions themselves. This is a dialogue 
that Habakkuk receives. A dialogue God so wants his people to have that he tells him in chapter 2, verse 2, write this down. Now, why would God do that? Because he knows what we're like, doesn't he? He knows how prone we are to stuff our questions. He knows how fearful we are to come in our emotion and our anger and our frustration and our confusion. And so he gives us a script so that when we are angry and confused and hurt and broken, we would not only have the words to use, but we could come with confidence knowing we have his blessing to use them. Because God knows that unless you wrestle with him and wrestle honestly, you will miss the one thing that you actually need. And what you and I need, it's not comprehension. It's not understanding. It's not being able to understand every nuance, every little bitty piece of God's redemptive plan. What we need, what we need is the true God who is mysterious in his ways, but in all of his purposes good, whose heart is tender and whose redemption is certain. And this book is an invitation that you would meet him. In chapter 2, verse 4, God gives the line that's the theme, not just of this book, but I would say the entirety of the Bible. A line that gets quoted in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. A line that when a little Augustinian monk in the early 1500s named Martin Luther stumbled on it, it turned the world upside down. A little line that says, the righteous shall live by faith. We live not by our understanding, not by our own strength not by our own works. We live by faith in a God who is mysterious in his ways, but in everything gloriously good, whose heart is tender and whose redemption is certain. This book, this book is an invitation that we would know him. It's an invitation that we would come to the God that ultimately we see perfectly and clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. Because where do we see God's mystery and his goodness more perfectly displayed than in Christ and his cross? What in this world is mysterious if it is not the only truly righteous one surrounded by sinners and crucified by them? What is injustice if it's not the Holy Lamb of God nailed to a cross by sinful men and women, if not Jesus and his cross. And yet, we're told that that moment in history, that place where we see sin most powerfully displayed, that place where we see injustice, the likes of which we will never see again, that place, it wasn't an accident. But as it says in Acts 2, it was a part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's will to crush him, as it says in Isaiah 53. And yet in the midst of that mystery of how could God possibly be accomplishing good through something this evil and this broken, 
we see God's goodness in all of its glory and beauty and majesty, don't we? Because the one who dies on that tree, the very site of the world's greatest injustice, that is also the place where justice is done. Because that, the righteous one surrounded by the wicked, he is the righteous one who dies for the wicked so that you and I who come to him by faith we would know that we don't need to fear the judgment of Babylon or the judgment of Judah or the judgment of Israel or any of the others because we know there is one who has borne it in our place. It is the invitation of a God who says, I will make you right with me. And not only will I make you right, but I will make every sad and broken thing in this world right too. Because that's not just the place where our individual stories find their resolution. It's the place where God's greater story reaches its end. Because that is the spot where the serpent's head is finally crushed. And the wicked are finally destroyed. And redemption is finally accomplished. And that crucified king, he is now a risen one. And one day he is coming again. And his kingdom and his redemption, it will come in full. Faith, faith is not hiding your questions. Faith is not stuffing them down. Faith is coming to that Jesus, mysterious and good, with all of your burden and all of your emotion and letting him reshape and reconstruct your false view of him so that you would see him as he really is and as you need him to be. Faith is not judging God by the lens of your circumstances. Faith is judging your circumstances by the lens of the cross. Faith is coming to God in the midst of this world where we live in the already and the not yet and saying, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I don't understand. I don't get what's happening, but I know this. I've seen your heart. And your ways are mysterious, but your purposes are good. And your redemption is certain and your heart is tender. That's the God C.S. Lewis met. That's the God he described when he wrote of Aslan, that lion in the Chronicles of Narnia who represented Jesus. He is not safe, but oh, is he good. And that's the one who shattered Lewis's house of cards, not because he hated him, but precisely because he loved him. Because as Lewis wrote, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. That's who we need too. Habakkuk is there that we would meet him. Father, we come to you this morning as a people who confess that we, we don't understand Lord, we are small and we are weak. But Lord, you're the God of Psalm 103 who remembers that we are dust and you don't spurn us. You love us. And in all of your mystery, Lord, you are so mindful of our hearts. You even give us the questions so that we can wrestle with you and we would know your goodness and your grace in full. And Lord, I pray that you would take this text and may we leave this place not... Not where we came in, but Lord, instead, having thrown ourselves fully and completely into the arms of the only one who can really save, as the righteous who live by their faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.